Hey, hey, folks, I'm Dave. And I'm Rue. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. So we are continuing 1984 this week with, I believe, chapter 11, or chapter 3 of part 2. Mm. Cue the music. How are you doing on this warm, warm day, Rue? I am regretting the fact that we live in the Southern Hemisphere, Dave. <sighs> you know, the funny thing is that when this actually goes out, it probably won't be that warm anymore. Yeah, no, we're gonna. We, so we've we've calculated. We have a, a bit of a buffer, so it's good. Yeah, we won't go into how long a buffer, but um, we're, we're quite pleased by it. Yes, yes. Uh, in the meantime, we're just kind of going. It's hot and it's a stinker, and it's not even summer yet. So, um, last time, uh, Winston and Julia consummated their relationship. Yes, they engaged in a political act. Indeed, that's what it was known as. Uh, Winston, they, they visited a farmhouse, which Winston kind of remembered from somewhere. They uh, avoided all the microphones in the trees, which spurred Rue off on this wonderful discussion we had about just how draconian and terrible Australia's uh, privacy laws have become. Oh, it gets worse as well because of, yeah, yeah, it's not going to stop there because okay. I'm sure the following chapter will spur on more, uh, yeah. so much more discussion of probably an equal or worse nature. <laughs> yes, the, the, there's some interesting research that's being done basically by a few tech, tech uh, magazines. Oh. They're looking at what kind of packages of data are being sent by our apps, even without our permissions. Oh, up yeah. There's some really weird and inappropriate quantities of information being transmitted on our devices. Well, you remember when... Um, oh, no, wait, wait, wait. No, we won't go into it. I'll just say this. Okay. Yeah, Google. So for years ago... I kind of made peace with the idea that anything I do online, you know, basically all my information is out there for everyone. And I thought I made peace with that. But it's funny, every time one of these things come out, like, you know, the the um, like when we were able to download that file from Facebook and see that somehow Facebook has um, every phone number that's in our phone and all that other information. And the Google one is even worse. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Um, I must admit that even though I've said I've made peace with it, it, it does kind of disgust and worry me every time something new of this nature comes out. It's grating. It's grating against common decency. That's what it is. It's just, it's like that sound that you and sensation <laughs> you get when someone is, is drawing their fingers or chalk across a a chalkboard fingers against fingernails the yeah finger, fingernails against a chalkboard it's that feeling like you, you literally get that feeling in the back of your head and just this is not this does not feel right this does not feel like a good idea in any way that corporations are having access to such quantities of information and they're selling it and selling it on potentially to governments or other organizations you should not need to know who is talking to whom. It's 
or whether they are or are not uh, proponents towards your ideals. Well, it kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was when Winston was looking at food he was eating in the cafeteria, but a very similar sentiment where he's like, life didn't used to be like this, did it? No. It's like in my bones, I feel like something's wrong. Life used to be better. And, you know, yeah. while we're nowhere near... We've traded. Uh, we've traded our... our was it? We've traded... Privacy for security? Even though we're not even that, not even security. It's we have traded the ability <coughs> to access information, and the trade-off from us has been being completely vulnerable to all our information being available. Also, so it's like a it's a unequal trade because there's a determination by others as to what kind of information we are able to access. We're given a, a, a how do you put it? A semblance of they, they kind of give us an illusion of hey you have the entire world worth of information at your fingertips but in reality there's financial gatekeeping for example if you want a journal article there's paywalls there's paywalls to newspaper articles that are online there's paywalls to all sorts of stuff um and then on top of that the information that we're receiving isn't completely transparent either because it's only often partial information. As a, my background is also including data science, so I just kind of look at it going, we're given the information that's sufficient to, to form a certain image or certain understanding or opinion, but not enough to actually... <coughs> Pardon me, I, I'm getting over a flu, so there might be a bit of coughing in this episode. Um, but yeah, it makes sense. We're given enough information to be able to form opinions that fall within the uh purvey of what they want us to actually for well you know you know what it reminds me of um and the the example i'm going to use isn't quite legal and i have to wonder if what's being done to us at the moment is really quite legal but the idea that before you agree to before you're allowed to install a piece of software you have to agree to the end user license agreement and often um there have been lawsuits where it has uh, gone uh, in the favor of uh, the the end user because they didn't really know what they were agreeing to. You oh. know, basically, it's a, I don't even know. Uh, I have ah, how to put it well. I, I'm I'm losing my. I think it's it's the, intellectual property laws. No, no, it's the idea of how can I agree to your sets of rules when I haven't even really been able to test your program and see what it is and whether I want to use it. Putting no, the cart gotcha. before the horse. Yeah, so they're, they're requiring certain conditions to be met before you can, so, so that you can have the software, but you don't even know if it's the product that you want. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There needs to be, uh, like, the demo versions and stuff like that, which a lot of companies don't bother with, which is not particularly... Well, okay, um, in, in the computer game field, uh, they've done studies on this, and it's Turns out that the reason they stopped demos is because uh, when a game does not have a de demo, it sells better. Because even for a good game, if there's a demo available, people will download the demo and then a good portion of people go, oh, this isn't actually for me. I won't buy the game. Yeah. Where, so whereas for if there's no demo, they'll go, oh, 
I might want to play this, and then they buy the game. And even if it's not for them, they've already purchased the game. Although a lot of people can also return, but... Uh... On PC, until recently, that was next to impossible. Yeah, exactly. Which is now... Yeah, I guess that's the loophole that now we have returns. Anyway, but this is going into... It's merging two different fields. But yeah, I'm concerned about the fact that we're not given 100% transparent information. Problem is that if you have a lot of information and you don't know how to analyze it or how to interpret it, and I'm not saying that you need to be dictated how to interpret, but you cannot interpret. Uh, it's like percentages and proportions. A lot of people don't grasp percentages and proportions. They really don't. Uh, when when you look at percentages and proportions, you look at the percentage of time that the the world has existed. Uh, in terms of, and then the percentage of time that humanity has been on the planet. And for us, of course, that percentage feels like a really long time. But in reality, the percentage is actually quite small. Human society and human presence on our planet hasn't been as long as the existence of the planet. And we just kind of, it's a really difficult concept to, to, to process. So percentages and proportions are not something we grasp usually that well unless it's it's tangible actually i've got a good example of that um because i play poker and um <laughs> when you when you do the percentages on win odds you're like oh i've got an 85 percent chance yeah i'm going all in on this and then you lose and you feel really bad because oh, but i had an 85 percent chance yeah. and and then you have to really yeah, you, ha you have to take that step back and go, yes, that's still a 15% chance to lose. And that's not peanuts. No, it's big. It's a big percentage. Or uh, the whole, um, and this is kind of, this is borderlining on a lot of this. This is why we have, um, there's a science behind why people follow conspiracy theories or why people are easily lulled into pseudoscientific statements. And a lot of it has to do with making reasonable sounding statements if one dispels or if one suspends the understanding of how probability works probability has to be put basically to the side <coughs> um and you have it's a selective understanding of information highly selective understanding of information is a problem <laughs> it's good to have the whole information and then knowing how to go, okay, well, of this whole information, these are the things that are relevant to my question, and this is what those relevant things mean. Well, that's research, isn't it? Yes. Our ability to research and actually be critical in our thinking is severely impacted by how we're trained to think and how we're trained and what kind of information we're provided with. And talking about percentages, um, not just mo in modern times, but in the past as well, a very small uh, percentage of people have been trained in that ability so yeah. I, I yeah. guess it's it's no um, it, it's not hard to see why now that the entire world has easy access to a, a universal amount of information to see that that training is probably still the same percentile we and the rest are going yeah. well this sounds right to me and suddenly all this misinformation gets uh, yeah. Uh, well, this, is, this is why I'm a huge proponent of developing not just critical thought, but critical and comprehensive thought processes. Critical is all fine and well, but if you don't know how to actually research and what the process of research is, you cannot really 
say that you're applying critical thought in a in a comprehensive manner. Okay. So deep philosophical and, thing. And bringing this back to the book. Well, I think also somehow. because um, reading helps with that. Reading helps with that. Reading trains uh, th- thought processes. Which is why we're as, all here. As long as one is wide read. As, like, th- that doesn't mean you're going to read everyone's opinion and give it equal weight, but that you actually read and you go, okay, well, where is this information coming from? Where is the stats coming from? And actually reflect on it. Reflection. That's honestly what it is. Reflection. We have a society that does not reflect but, but I just or encourage need, it. I just need to listen to Big Brother and he'll tell me what I need. Exactly. We are living in a society where we're told, don't think, just do what Big Brother tells you to do. And we do 90% of the time. And that's a big proportion. So shall we begin? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, chapter three. Well, I'm going to go chapter 11 because that's where I am. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We can come here once again, said Julia. It's generally safe to use any hideout twice, but not for another month or two, of course. As soon as she woke up, her demeanor had changed. She became alert and businesslike, put her clothes on, knotted the scarlet sash about her waist, and began arranging the details of the journey home. It seemed natural to leave this to her. She obviously had a practical cunning which Winston lacked, and she seemed also to have an exhaustive knowledge of the countryside round London, start away from innumerable community hikes. The route she gave him was quite different from the one by which he had come, and brought him out at a different railway station. Never go home the same way as you went out, she said, as though enunciating an important general principle. She would leave first, and Winston was to wait half an hour before following her. She had named a place where they could meet after work, four evenings hence. It was a street in one of the poorer quarters, where there was an open market, which was generally crowded and noisy. She would be hanging about among the stalls, pretending to be in search of shoelaces or sewing thread. If she judged that the coast was clear, she would blow her nose when he approached. Otherwise, he was to walk past her without recognition. But with luck, in the middle of the crowd, it would be safe to talk for a quarter of an hour and arrange another meeting. And now I must go, she said, as soon as he had mastered his instructions. I'm due back at 19.30. I've got to put in two hours for the junior anti-sex league handing out leaflets or something. Isn't it bloody? Give me a brush down, would you? Have I got any twigs in my hair? Are you sure? Then goodbye, my love. Goodbye. She flung herself into his arms, kissed him almost violently, and a moment later pushed her way through the saplings and disappeared into the wood with very little noise. Even now he had not found out her surname or her address. However, it made no difference for it was inconceivable that they could ever meet indoors or exchange any kind of written communication. As it happened, they never went back to the clearing in the wood. During the month of May, there was only one further occasion on which they actually succeeded in making love. That was in another hiding place known to Julia, the belfry of a ruinish church in an almost deserted stretch of country where an atomic bomb had fallen thirty years earlier. It was a good hiding place when once you got there, but the getting there was very dangerous. For the rest, they could meet only in the streets, in a different place every evening, and never for more than half an hour at a time. In the street, it was usually possible to talk, after a fashion, as they drifted down the crowded pavements, not quite abreast and never looking at one another. They carried on a curious intermittent conversation, which flicked on and off like the beams of a lighthouse, suddenly nipped into silence by the approach of a party uniform or the proximity of a telescreen then taken up again minutes later in the middle of a sentence, then abruptly cut short as they parted at the agreed spot, then continued almost without introduction on the following day. 
Julia appeared to be quite used to this kind of conversation, which she called talking by installments. It's like a payment plan. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. She was also surprisingly adept at speaking without moving her lips. Just once in almost a month of nightly meetings, they managed to exchange a kiss. They were passing in silence down a side street. Julia would never speak when they were away from the main streets. When there was a deafening roar, the earth heaved and the air darkened, and Winston found himself lying on his side, bruised and terrified. A rocket bomb must have dropped quite near at hand. Suddenly, he became aware of Julia's face a few centimeters from his own, deathly white, as white as chalk. Even her lips were white. She was dead. He clasped her against him and found he was kissing a live, warm face, but there was some powdery stuff that got in the way of his lips. Both of their faces were thickly coated with plaster. Just going to point out, chances of them just having been doused in asbestos are pretty high. But the other thing is also (coughs) um, the belfry of a church. Belfry of a church that's within an area that survived an atomic attack. So this was obviously written back before they understood the impact. Possibly. Of nuclear attacks um, in terms well, of... Well, no, no. It is. No, they understood like the physical destructive force. Well, this was published in 1949, so that's four years after the two bombs in Japan. Yes, in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But it is not... It would not have um, been a great indicator of... Uh, like In terms of understanding of radiation... Uh, within the area, residual radiation. Maybe not for the journalists, but I have to imagine with all the testing, at least people to know would have. Well, yeah, people to know would have had some knowledge, but which that doesn't even matter to what we're talking about. No, so I'm sorry I brought it. No, up. it's okay. I mean, in terms of the author knowledge, yeah, the knowledge yeah. of the author in regards to this um, particular topic, the fact that he's like, oh yeah, no, cool. They they um, they're just chilling out where there's you know residual radiation. No, but he no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Science floor identified. Sorry. I mean, they're covered in white here, but they were green afterwards. <laughs> Slight gloves. <laughs> oh my god! Not just love. I'm actually surprised. I'm not surprised that these guys have. Um... So I'm just going. I'm not surprised that the health status of the population is not great. I'm suspecting that only the very top would be able to get treatment for things like radiation, sickness, and residual effects of yeah, environmental yeah, factors. Um, so yeah, the different layers of that. Of and radiation's pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I wonder if the rocket bombs have any... Um... If they're dirty? I think... Did, did they mention... That they're not nuclear? I don't remember. I don't think they're nuclear, but... Um, Whether they've got, like, if they're dirty bombs. Something like that. Maybe. We never know. It's a bit tricky. And if, if it's Big Brother shooting it and get at themselves, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, there were evenings when they reached their rendezvous and then had to walk past one another without a sign because a patrol had just come round the corner where a helicopter was hovering overhead. Even if it had been less dangerous, it would still have been difficult to find time to meet Winston's working week was 60 hours, Julia's was even longer, and their free days varied according to the pressure of work. It did not often coincide. Julia, in any case, seldom had an evening completely free. She spent an astonishing amount of time in attending lectures and demonstrations, distributing literature for the Junior Anti-Sex League, preparing banners for Hate Week, making collections for the savings campaign, and such-like activities. It paid, she said. It was camouflage. 
If you kept the small rules, you could break the big ones. She even induced Winston to mortgage yet another of his evenings by enrolling himself for the part-time munition work, which was done voluntarily by zealous party members. Okay. Just side note, because this is curious to me. Okay. Standard working hours or normal working hours refers to the legislation limit that working hours per day per week. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's saying, they're saying 60 hours and Julia even more. Yeah. Okay, so way back when during... Because uh, the 40-hour work week is a rather recent invention. Yes. The standard working hours of countries worldwide are 40 or 44 hours a week. And now, but not everywhere. And now new... Research is showing that we're probably 40 is way too much for us. We should be working a lot less. Yeah. Um, fun fact uh, Northern, North Korean labor camps at 112 Oof. hours a week. Um, and overtime is meant to be more. Uh, Hunter gatherer, let's see. So they're saying two and a half, uh, two and a half days per week, around six hours and a day, is what the the I can't pronounce it because it has a sound at the beginning, uh, which I can't do. So the bushmen, uh, in the Kalahari, um, yeah. So on average, it's between five to six hours during our worker gathering age. Nineteen seventies looked in northern Brazil under four point eight six. Basically, you don't want to have more than eight hours a day. Yeah, is is the thing, far below. Um, so that's our. But uh, they said basically, hunter gatherers worked far in excess of modern humans' forty hour a week. Yeah, well, also, if you're thinking about controlling your population, overwork is one way to do it. If if they actually cared about the quality of the work, you know, now yeah. now we're finding out that like an eight hour day, a forty hour week. For the afternoons, you're getting a lot of diminishing returns. People are not productive yeah. past four hours, usually. No. Well, the funny fact is that um, all this research looking at hunter-gatherers and older societies, agrarian kind of best work, of course, they're going to have more work hours. But A, um, population was less. Therefore, you needed to have fewer people doing more. Yeah. B, what was their life expectancy like? It wasn't great. We're talking way under 40. We're talking like in their 30s. That would be old age. Are you sure? Yes. Our age, age thingy, average age of, of uh, expectancies. It's only been from the turn of the century that uh, the average uh, maximum, like it was a death age, death age, word is not happening. The age of death, average age of death in the US alone, it was 37. Because I've heard um, our our age, our life expectancy hasn't really changed that much for it's most of our... huge, huge changes. We've had huge changes in life expectancy. A lot of it is due to uh, better health practices. But when it comes to our ancestrals, uh, average life expectancy, because I'm all about this. Sorry. Changes. Over time. Over time. Type. Sorry. Typing is not so great right now. So, yeah. Early 19th century England, 40. Mm. 1900 world average, 31. Does it go back further? 1950 world average, 48. Can you go back further? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is wiki, but still, they tend to, they're referencing pretty well. 
Life expectancy by region, if we wanted to go, I, the only place... Um, How far back does it go? In the 1950s, 65 was, was considered old age. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested like hundreds old of years. Age. Yeah, we can have yeah. a look at that. Uh, mortality rates, hypothetical cohort. Sorry, I'm just snooping, snooping, snoop, 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 snoop. So now we've got living an average uh, 30 to 40 years in Swaziland, for example. So that would be Africa, fairly isolated. And 82.6 years in Japan. But um, that might be also due to infant deaths. Uh, so in, I think there's a graph yeah, there. Yeah, it explains that infant deaths is, is part of it that will contribute to it. So Paleolithic, 33. Okay, 30s. Neolithic, okay. 20 to 30. Yeah, then I I was fed bad information. Yes, it does. They they weren't so bad in the medieval Islamic world, mainly because they had plumbing. They used aqueducts that would help. Yeah. Uh, So they ended up with approximately 35 plus. So you had scholars were 89 to 80. They're 60. They did did well, actually. Um, That's the, uh, yeah, that would be in um, the Canadian Maritimes. Canadians did well hmm. in certain areas. They actually had a great life expectancy compared to the rest of the world. Uh, 60 is a great average for, for I mean, yeah. way, back in the day. Um, and now we're getting more up to modern times. 18th century France, 27.5 to 30. I have to wonder if a lot of life expectancy of the, those eras was not only going off to war, but just how, how susceptible we were to every disease These, on the yeah. planet, including unclean plumbing and that kind of... Yeah, so they were, yeah, they were looking at it. So the bubonic plague didn't help. Um, well, because one thing I heard was, um, you know, the the... the the ills of today, the suicide, depression, diabetes, heart disease, yeah. these things didn't exist more than like, uh, in yeah. terms of how uh, impactful they are. They didn't exist 100 years ago. They were, yeah, they yeah. also split it. They split it. They've done, okay, if you're not a kid and you manage to get up to 21, yeah, you might, you have a probability of living until you're in your, well, like I say, the maximum they've got here in 1550 is about 71. Um, but you need to get to 21 for that to right. happen. And the rate of infant mortality harder. is ridiculous. Although we've got some states in America that are starting to compete with the figures yeah. that we used to have. Well, it's like that um, story yeah. I remember hearing about the infant mortality rate in this English hospital, and then they just started washing their hands and when they went on shift, and suddenly that... Uh, yeah, here's... here's a, I bet that was from a QI episode I heard that from. They have some fantastic... There's a great analysis of what they would have expected if we didn't have the influence of disease. Hmm. For example, in Africa... The African continent has a pretty bad well, rate of, of AIDS. Well, that's the point I want to make, you know, before uh, our modern ills of diabetes, heart disease, depression, suicide. It was mainly disease that took us out. To be fair, depression has always existed. So has diabetes. All these things have always existed. The difference, however, is that we now know what it is and that and to actually address it. Um, the reason we're seeing larger proportions of the population, we're not even seeing larger proportions of the population. The reason we're seeing big numbers is simply we're a bigger population. The purport, oh. Does that make sense? Like you, you can say, oh, well, you know, depression didn't used to be a problem. Well, actually, 
instead of depression, they had a different name for it, and they ennui. would yeah ennui or <clears throat> not even ennui. They would they they'd um, say they're being say you have someone who has anxiety, <laughs> or if you're just a, a woman, if you just happen <laughs> to just be a woman, a woman <laughs> yeah. you would be labeled with hysteria, except for the past hysteria in, in the past medical treatment, hysteria would have been treated with locking them up. In modern day hysteria, we just don't treat them medically and therefore let them die because someone didn't want to diagnose whatever was actually causing the person stomach pains. And oh, look, they got cancer in their ovaries. <sighs> Yes, medical sexism is a thing. Um, you can the stats do not lie. Uh, but yes, so their main thing that's throwing off our global population mortality rate is African countries have not had the same improvements in mortality rates because they have been stripped of their resources. So, right. You know. Okay. Um, hmm. But you can look at other things like economic circumstances. Okay. I, I was completely wrong about that. But it's fa fascinating. Um, it gets really complex. You can get really, uh, really messy. But let's go back to the book. But the U.S. has some is generally a great indicator of how things are. Yeah. So um, yes, our li life expectancy of our population would be fascinating to look at. Considering, have a look at Winston. He's in his forties, mm. and he is not well. No, no, and remember the only, the only old people really are the proles. Yes, and of those, the proles do not look well either. It is rare for there to be someone that is his age or older, but that's also due to political machinations. So yes. it's like political machinations, but also no access to help a week. You're going to get punished. Yep. You're going to end up in forced labor camps. You're going to end up whatever. And the thing about forced labor camp is they use you till they can't use you, and then they just throw you on the pile or well, they use put you, you out of your misery. They use you till you drop dead, to be blunt, in the middle of know, digging. So, one evening every week, Winston spent four hours of paralyzing boredom, screwing together small bits of metal, which were probably parts of bomb fuses, in a draughty, ill-lit workshop where the knocking of hammers mingled drearily with the music of the telescreens. Oh, wee yo, wee yo. Uh, when they met in the church tower, the gaps in their fragmentary conversation were filled up. It was a blazing afternoon. The air in the little square chamber above the bells was hot and stagnant, and smelt overpoweringly of pigeon dung. They sat talking for hours on the dusty twig-littered floor. You know, I just have to interject and say... Just the ability to have an open conversation with another human being. Yeah, that having that stripped away from you. Mm. This is so about dehumanizing and just treating them like oh, um, hogs. Maybe this this is another small tangent, but I do want to bring it up. Um, there are there was an article today I skimmed over about a um, a guy who went undercover in a in like the alt-right organizations in new york mm -hmm. and the one thing he found out and really heavily sympathized with and in the discussion amongst the article uh there was talk about how this is fairly common with uh white supremacists and neo-nazi groups is just how um dehumanizing the ethos is for its individual members how they're they're shown that yeah. Empathy and compassion and discussion are weaknesses. It's all about kind of perceived group strength. So when you're trapped in that kind of uh, environment. Um, 
Yeah, if you're, it's kind of a self-perpetuating mouse. You, you, if you're discouraged from actually thinking independently or having thoughts and research, uh, like a research skill set. Well, well, not even that. It's that they're told to kind of shut off their emotions. Their yeah, emotions the, yeah, are weak the, and the sociopathy. So they're encouraged to be sociopaths. Um, that's not the way I would put it. But, but soci- sociopathy is the 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 lack of or the absence of emotions it's actually uh can be induced through trauma or the way your mm. brain is wired um but it's but just yeah that 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 inability to have a real conversation with another person because it's frowned upon based on the group culture and the group think it's like yeah, anti-social personality disorder it's a fascinating one yeah the the, the um the what I took away from it was that, yeah, it seems to be the indoctrination is very dehumanized. Well, it, it, these people are alone. It's kind of breaking off all their connections to other people in the outside yeah. world. It's just the group that matters. Um, it depends on how it is. Oh, no. Psycho- I, I just thought, yeah, related to um, the way the party is. It's interesting because that, that indicates that they're creating an abusive environment that is recurring, continual tra- trauma, which can be an instigator of a lot of, I mean, A, it's going to attract a lot of people who are instigators of these environments, but also it's going to be causing uh, trauma and abuse, which feeds the, the, the cluster of um, psychiatric disorders. Yeah, that fall into this. It's it's not to say that they are. I say, you can't blame a person for their psychiatric disorder. No, mm. um, you can blame the environment that stimulates these. Yes. these for sure. Um, creating these environments and not having environments that are there to protect or to counter these effects or to encourage an individual to be responsible for their impact as an individual on society and actually reflecting and reviewing and I mean. And treating it essentially treating it like what it is which it is a physiological disorder of the brain mm. they're, they're traumatizing they're re they're basically burning the the neural pathways in a way that is um, harmful to the individuals and causing permanent damage and it's an intensely negative environment yeah um yeah they were they're looking at it's difficult because psychopaths and sociopaths are often interchanged um and from what I understand, they, 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 they are a very small amount. Like true sociopathy is very small. Yes, part true. Of the population. Well, sociopathy and psycho, uh, psychopathy, psychopathy. Um, if not uh, due to usually, it's uh, what do you mean? So psycho. I'm just reading from a psychology side. Psych, psychopaths are more likely to be a genetic or a physiological cause. That they might be born with it, maybe they're born with it. Sorry, are they born? But sociopathy is learned behavior. That's so what you're saying. it's learned behavior, but as well as there's an environmental impact. So there's been trauma or abuse, and it's caused the. The thing is, we forget <coughs> all forms of of these um, environmentally influenced psychiatric disorders. They are still physical disorders they are causing physical or physiological change in an individual because childhood abuse and trauma 
cause physiological changes. Yeah. So you might not be born with the initial um, condition, but you can form. The, it's like feeding your child sugar, a high concentration of sugar every day from the time that they're born. They're going to end up with physiological yeah. problems. Well, same difference with but emotional. And also, and I should mention that even though you know, I, I want to kind of downplay, <coughs> that there is there is a tendency to, uh, to call people who exhibit certain traits, especially online sociopaths. Then I wanted to temper that by saying it's a small amount of population. But then also, uh, as you pointed out before, when talking about proportion, our populations are so huge now that even a small proportion is a large number. Yeah. Um, and the, the the other challenge is the um, we can't. Okay, this is a feeling I have towards mental health issues. Full stop. We cannot treat mental health issues um, with the stigma that we we project on them. Uh, okay, say someone's a sociopath, and they're analyzed or they're uh, they're assessed by someone who's qualified to do so. Big emphasis on qualified to do so, um, and they're assessed as being a sociopath or having sociopathic tendencies or some sort of behavioral disorder. Okay, if they recognize this, if they want to take ownership for it and actually work on it, which my my gut would say that a it's sociopath hard. probably not because no, they don't see anything wrong. With no, no, sociopaths do. Sociopaths have. Um, conscience, but it's slightly delayed in how it functions. It's not great. It's not a very strong conscience. So they can distinguish between right and wrong. Psychopaths cannot. Okay. A true psychopath uh, cannot distinguish between right and wrong. Um, and is generally bolder, manipulative, self-centered, and dangerous. Socio sociopaths, a lot of us have sociopathic traits. It's just that we are encouraged if we're in the right environment <laughs> If we're in a good environment that encourages us to actually pause, reflect, and address it, we tend to work on those traits and, and try and create counter traits. Um, we don't, we, if we use words like psychopath and sociopath, and this is a feeling I personally have, I know others do too, when we use them as slurs or we yeah. use them as labels to people, when A, we're not qualified to make the diagnosis, um, <laughs> and B, we don't actually, like B, we're not qualified to make the diagnosis, really A and B and C and all of the letters, we are creating, uh, we're contributing towards the stigma that discourages people with these issues or these challenges to address them. Right. We are not helping the situation. We can maybe encourage someone, hey, have you considered? Um, I, like, are, are you okay? Would you, would you like some support? Look, I, I think you're a great person, but you have some tendencies that make me feel like maybe you would benefit from seeking some professional counseling. How dare you? How dare you? But, no. but like, and the thing is, I think just like with a car, you get a tune-up. Mm. People get their car tuned up. In some cases, some cars require a specialist for that particular area. And yes, the... And some, a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money. The problem is that we don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place, but we yeah. do not have... We also don't have uh, a society that ha um, that fosters the attitude towards these people of, hey, you can address yeah. this, you can work on this, you can actually... There, there, there isn't the societal will there. No, the societal will is it's much easier to label and condemn 
And sweep under the rug. And sweep under the rug and ignore. Then to actually go, hey, it's okay if you have challenges. That's cool. Everyone has some sort of challenge. Your challenge might require a particular specialized form of addressing it. Mm. And that's, you should feel empowered and safe enough that society is not going to condemn you for actually being a protagonist towards your own mental health. And hopefully it's very easy to find and get treatment. I would say, this is a blunt political statement, but still, the access or the lack of accessibility to mental health is directly correlated with the amount of stigma that we associate with mental health conditions. Yeah. If we had less stigma... And we saw mental health as, hey, it's just part of our health system. It's something we need to deal with. We would not be stigmatizing it as much and not saying, oh, well, you only need it if you're especially X, Y, Z, or who cares about those people anyway because they're X, Y, Z. Or it's, it's not the exception to the rule. Lack of empathy, basically. Yes. Essentially, we are being sociopathic towards sociopaths. Yeah. And other disorders, but specifically, we are our sociopathy in the sense of it's infiltrated, it's uh, infused itself into our actual approach of mental health. We have a sociopathic tendency in a system yeah. that is requiring empathy and requiring uh, qualities of care. You can't say it's a mental health, it's not mental health care if you drop the care. Yeah, hard to express it, but if that makes any sense. It does, and I think we need to return to the book. Yes, yes. Let, lest our uh, readers, or our listeners we don't have yet yell at us, <laughs> which they are not doing. Please don't yell. <laughs> don't yell. Show care. Don't be such a fast. Yes, please, please. <laughs> we need care too. Yes, yes. They sat talking for hours on the dusty, twig-littered floor, one or other of them getting up from time to time to cast a glance through the arrow slits and make sure that no one was coming. Julia was 26 years old. She lived in a hostel with 30 other girls, always in the stink of women. How I hate women, she said parenthetically. That's an odd way to describe that. That is, that is remember how I have a feeling this author has a teeny tiny touch of the sexisms? Well, more than a teeny tiny touch from what was that rant you went on maybe oh my God, four or five bad. chapters ago? Yeah, I was like, like no, he, he's, he's a pretty blatant sexist. Okay. Let's... <laughs> so that sentence... That's that's just him reinforcing. Even women hate women. See, <laughs> freaking insult. That's what he is. And and she worked as he had guessed on the novel writing machines in the fiction department. She enjoyed her work, which consisted chiefly in running and servicing a powerful but tricky electric motor. She was not clever, but was fond of using her hands and felt at home with machinery. Well, she seems to be more clever than Winston so far. Yeah, so far. <laughs> so far, I'm like, I have more confidence in her intellectual capacity than his. She could describe the whole process of composing a novel from the general directive issued by the planning committee down to the final touching up by the rewrite squad. <laughs> the re- rewrite squad in color. Uh, but she was not interested in the finished product. She didn't much care for reading, she said. Books were just a commodity that had to be produced like jam or bootlaces. Oh... Yeah. She had no memories of anything before the early 60s, and the only person she had ever known who talked frequently of the days before the revolution was a grandfather who had disappeared when she was eight. At school, she had been captain of the hockey team and had won the gymnastics trophy two years running. She had been a troop leader in the spies and a branch secretary in the youth league before joining the junior anti-sex league. She had always borne an excellent character, 
She had even, an infallible mark of good reputation, been picked out to work in Pornosec, the subsection of the fiction department which turned out cheap pornography for distribution among the proles. It was nicknamed Muck House by the people who worked in it, she remarked. There she had remained for a year, helping to produce booklets in sealed packets with titles like Spanking Stories or One Night in the Girls' School to be bought furtively by proletarian youths who were under the impression that they were buying something illegal. What are these books like? said Winston curiously. <laughs> oh, ghastly rubbish. They're boring, really. They only have six plots, but they swap them round a bit. Of course, I was only on the kaleidoscopes. I was never in the rewrite squad. I'm not literary, dear. Not even enough for that. He learned with astonishment that all the workers in Pornosec except the heads of the department were girls. The theory was, oh, I bet you're going to love this. The theory was that men whose sex instincts were less controllable than those of women were in greater danger of being corrupted by the filth they handled. (laughs) And so we have another form of classic sexism where men are considered to be not much above an animal. Yes. Can we not perpetuate this, please? Uh, Thank you. Men are... Oh, here's even more. They don't even like having married women there, she added. Girls are always supposed to be so pure. Here's one who isn't, anyway. She had had her first love affair when she was 16, with a party member of 60 who later committed suicide to avoid arrest. And a good job, too, said Julia. Otherwise, they'd have had my name out of him when he confessed. Since then, there had been various others. Life, as she saw it, was quite simple. You wanted a good time. They, meaning the party, wanted to stop you having it. You broke the rules as best you could. She seemed to think it just as natural that they should want to rob you of your pleasures as that you should want to avoid being caught. She hated the party, and said so in the crudest words, but she made no general criticism of it. Except where it touched upon her own life, she had no interest in party doctrine. He noticed that she never used newspeak words except the ones that had passed into everyday use. She had never heard of the Brotherhood and refused to believe in its existence. Any kind of organized revolt... Oh, yes? This is interesting because it smells like she... The fact that she's not really hugely into reading might be part of why the brainwashing doesn't work so well on her. Ah, she, she's not constantly reinforcing the propaganda. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing is also she's got her grandfather who disappeared when she was eight. So she had enough impact on her formative life to kind of go like, eh, revolution. Eh, well, yeah, it's a thing that happened. It's not necessarily a better thing. There was other stuff that went on before the revolution that was actually good. So she she has things like she she's aware or familiar with the concept of freedom, which most are not. Like the actual concept of freedom right. as opposed to ignorance is freedom. And, and maybe the idea of her not being as smart as Winston is because she doesn't care in the philosophy and the idea of a resistance, whereas he's really uh, devoted a lot of internal thinking to the product and, uh, you know, writing his in his diary and caring about that sort of thing. He, her, yeah, her sense of rebelling or resistance is simply, I want to be able to live my life the way I want to live my life, but I have to work around all this stuff. Well, so it sounds like she thinks she's worked out how life works, how to play the game, as it were. It's like a push and pull. They want us to stop having fun. It's our job to work out how to get as much fun around them as we can. Yeah, there, there it is. It's, I think, yeah, it's coming. 
the revolt was bound to failure, struck as being stupid, break the rules, but stay alive. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so, so it's almost that she's turned, or she, she's seen life as a, as a game. Yeah. And, and of course, it's a game with high stakes, because if you fail, you die. But. And remember, we've had a lot of interaction with people her age, and they're usually quite fanatical and scary. Yeah. Nah. Nah. Party sucks. Which makes you think, what was it that caused her to form that mindset? Or mm. was it a combination of both things? It's, well, maybe it was her grandfather. She, she seems to have had this rebellion in her for a long time. Yeah. Because she, she's been part of everything a good party member has. Her grandfather has, disappeared when she was Maybe eight. that was it. It's going to point out, dis- disappeared. Yeah. Emphasis. That'll do it. And for her to, men- well, for that to mention, maybe that was the parent, you know. Yeah, that would have been possibly the thing that made the... Mm. Yes, yeah. Okay, so any kind of organized revolt against against the party, which was bound to be a failure, struck her as stupid. The clever thing was to break the rules and stay alive all the same. Mm. He wondered vaguely how many others like her there might be in the younger generation. People who'd grown up in the world of the revolution, knowing nothing else, accepting the party as something unalterable, like the sky... Not rebelling against its authority, but simply evading it, as a rabbit dodges a dog. They did not discuss the possibility of getting married. It was too remote to be worth thinking about. No imaginable committee would ever sanction such a marriage, even if Catherine, Winston's wife, could somehow have been got rid of. It was hopeless even as a daydream. What was she like, your wife? said Julia. She was, uh, do you know the new speak word, good thinkful? meaning naturally orthodox, incapable of thinking a bad thought. No, I didn't know the word, but I know the kind of person right enough. He began telling her the story of his married life, but curiously enough, she appeared to know the essential parts of it already. She described to him almost as though she had seen or felt it, the stiffening of Catherine's body as soon as he touched her, the way in which she still seemed to be pushing him from her with all her strength, even when her arms were clasped tightly round him. With Julia, he felt no difficulty in talking about such things. Catherine, in any case, had long ceased to be a painful memory and became merely a distasteful one. I could have stood it if it hadn't been for one thing, he said. He told her about the frigid little ceremony that Catherine had forced him to go through on the same night every week. She hated it, but nothing would make her stop doing it. She used to call it, and you'll never guess. Our duty to the party, said Julia promptly. How how did you know that? I've been at school too, dear. Sex talks once a month for the over-sixteens, and in the youth movement. They rub it into you for years. I dare say it works in a lot of cases, but of course you can never tell. People are such hypocrites. She began to enlarge upon the subject. With Julia, everything came back to her own sexuality. As soon as this was touched upon in any way, she was capable of great acuteness. Unlike Winston, she had grasped the inner meaning of the party's sexual puritanism. It was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own which was outside the party's control and which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. Which is what we discussed previously, Mm. yeah. What was more important was that sexual privation induced hysteria, which was desirable because it could be transformed into war fever and leader worship. Yeah, yeah, as we were saying, you know, keep them busy, (coughs) but not with that. Yeah, because... um, Listeners might uh, be able to relate this, but sometimes, uh, at least I know when I'm have been especially horny, I find myself maybe doing things that 
if I had been completely in my right mind and thought about it, I might not have done. Yeah, so the idea, of, well, it, it's dem there's a lot of literature that supports the idea of, um, like, we have an ability to control. Uh, we have a lot of ability to control. However, in, I mean, looking at a purely animalistic drive, it can be quite challenging. Um, there's a lot of documentation. Well, just that idea also of war fever and leader worship, if that energy, the redirect, uh, yeah. it's being redirected towards mm -hmm. uh, something else. Yeah. And there's no release for that energy. Yes, exactly. Or it, it, we've talked before about that weird, almost simultaneously repression slash release of like the two minutes hate where it seems to be an outlet, but yet it feeds in on itself yeah, and it's makes it worse. Manipulation in the highest degree. That's what that is. Well, Ugh. um, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to finish her thought here and then we'll continue this chapter in another episode. Yes, that's it. So the way Julia put it was, when you make love, you're using up energy. And afterwards, you feel happy and don't give a damn for anything. They can't bear you to feel like that. They want you to be bursting with energy all the time. All this marching up and down and cheering and waving flags is simply sex gone sour. If you're happy inside yourself, why should you get excited about Big Brother and the three-year plans and the two minutes hate and all the rest of their bloody rot? Yeah, as we were saying, it's, yeah, if contentment breeds discontent. In <laughs> yeah, yeah yes. very well put. Yes. Okay, we'll, we'll finish with that thought then. Um, so yes, um, we're going to continue on to next week. Next episode, we'll cover the rest of this chapter. We just kind of got distracted a little bit. No, well, I mean, Although there was a lot to discuss. Yeah. I'm sure it'll edit down a bit. But yeah. uh, Do you have anything yes. uh, with what we read that you'd like to no, bring it's just, up at it's, the end? No, it's interesting. It's kind of expanding on the thoughts that we had initially. Well, that's we what I like. You know, we stopped to say something, and then, she, like, especially at the end, Julia kind of reiterate exactly what yeah so we're on the same we're on the same page so to speak yeah yes yes it's interesting and yeah manipulation of your population forcing it to behave in a certain way it almost feels like a giant rat's maze and with no exit no yeah well i'm just thinking it sounds it's like the experimentation of a, a handful of people on the population which is just ugh. yeah is a good way Ugh. to put it. Ethics bias, I'm just going, it's horrendous. <sighs> well, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us on Twitter, I can be found at, at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. Yes, and we now also have a Twitter address. Oh, we do indeed. Yes. Well, I was going to say, uh, you also have a personal Twitter. If... I do have a personal Twitter at Rumic, at Rumic Moo. That would be me. R O O M C. M O O. <laughs> Very yes. Yeah. Uh, so we have both on Facebook and on Twitter uh, an address or an account, which is either twitter.com S M B S L T podcast, or uh, the same thing, but as a Facebook page, which is again S M B S L T podcast. And you can find us there, and you can usually message us there, and one of us will respond. <laughs> yes. Um, the music in this episode at the top of the podcast was Ministry of Love by The Eurythmics. And at the end will be an excerpt of I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. Mm -hmm. So until next time when we finish this chapter, I've been Dave. And I've been Rude. 
Enjoy your reading, everyone. Enjoy. Thank you.